Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode four of X Labs Point One, the potentially Patreon exclusive program, which endeavors to look at uh, all the stuff that doesn't fit into the other X Labs shows. Uh, and of course, we are starting way back at the beginning of Mutantum in the Marvel Universe, even before it was a even a thing. And we're going to continue our investigation into Namor the Submariner. Now, before we get into it, I want to thank you all so much for being a part of this with me and for all your support. And as I said with the first three episodes, I'm recording these a little bit ahead of time, so I can't name names just yet, but uh, rest assured, as soon as I can, I most definitely will. But uh, suffice it to say, if you're listening to this, you have my most sincerest gratitude, so thank you all so much. And now, let's get into today's feature presentation. This is Marvel Mystery Comics number 4, which had a February 1940 cover date. The story we're covering is Submariner Goes to War by Bill Everett with edits by Joe Simon. Cover price, 10 cents American. Now, this issue is notable for being Submariner's first cover appearance. This is the first time he gets the cover front and center. It's a pretty big deal, I'd say. Now, for the story, we open with a recap. Now, you all remember back in the long ago, sometimes we'd see Superman writing down some, like, diary-style notes into a giant book, sometimes, you know, etching them in with his X-ray vision. Well, this is Namor rereading his own third-person diary entry from a great big scroll while seated in a cute little chair with an anchor on the side of it. And I can totally see this chair being at, like, a kitschy seafood restaurant or something. It's very, very cute. Anyway, he catches himself and us up on the plot, and then we're into today's feature. Namor and Ms. Betty Dean are chatting, with the latter attempting to convince our hero into siding with the Allies. That's right where we left off, right? Well, what we know about Namor is that he cannot say no to a pretty face. And so he tells her that he'll gather an army of Submariners and fix this war. Of course, they are known as Submariners and not Atlanteans just yet, but uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I, I, like, I like him calling all of his, uh, his peers Submariners. Now, they part company with Betty being sent over to a nearby destroyer ship for transport back to New York City and Namor hopping into the drink. He swims at lightning speed to make it all the way back to Antarctica and, you know, like no time flat. There, he heads into the Palace of Ice, an underwater fortress. Once inside, he has a meeting with the Emperor, who might be that same Thakor guy that we met back in Motion Picture Funnies. He, the Emperor, that is, is flanked by his Court of Three. These are little mermen who will be sitting in for the conference. Now, Namor shares his story and experience with the Emperor and suggests that, you know what? Maybe they were wrong about the white race. He then asks for permission to assemble an army to, to assist them in their war. The Emperor tells our hero that this flies in the face of all of their rules, but he trusts Namor's judgment. And so he is given the rank of Commander-in-Chief of the Submariner Army and Navy, and is given the Emperor's full blessing to aid the Allies. From here, we jump ahead a week, which is as long as it takes to whip up a not-yet-Atlantean army. Now, we see a dogfight going down with Axis forces swarming on sea and air. They destroy an Allied transport jet, which plummets into the drink. Just then, several planes emerge from the drink. Yeah, Namor's got airplanes. Well, aerial submarines is what they call them. What's more, the Submariner jets are crafted of a metal that has a, quote, repellent quality, so that any artillery shot at them will miss. So, uh, <laughs> this is kind of like... You know when you play like the floor is lava and uh, there's always some jerk there who's like, no, no, I'm wearing titanium boots, it's okay. 
the Submariners just keep up in the ante to keep themselves uh, safe from uh, from bombardment, I suppose. So uh, Namor and company, they are victorious, of course, and they take down the Axis jets. He then has his men rob the fallen baddies of their cargo. Just then, he notices that an enemy submarine is approaching. At Namor's orders, the Submariners swarm the thing, picking it apart until it plummets to the bottom of the sea floor. Our hero calls over to his admiral, named Daka, and gives the command to keep looting the cargo, and then once done, to bring it to a marked location without being noticed. Now, As he's chatting up his second-in-command, Namor spies an issue of the Not Daily Bugle on his desk. The paper reports that an American freighter's cargo has been seized by the enemy. Now, Namor feels honor-bound to helping this crew, but his entire crew cannot be out of water for more than five hours. Well, we learn here that uh, Namor has no time limit. He can be out of the water for an indefinite amount of time, which is convenient, yes, but uh, he will be the one to head this mission into trying to track down this, uh, this stolen freighter. And so, for the next two weeks, Namor searches every mile of Norway's coastline in search of the freighter. He finally does find it, and he sees that it's being guarded by two sinister submarines. Namor hops up into the freighter and then swipes some sailing clothes to ensure he doesn't stand out, which I gotta say is a good play since he was just wearing his green scaly underpants up until now. Namor then overhears a conversation between a scared couple on board, and we'll call them Tim and Barbara since those are their names. Now, Barbara is the daughter of the skipper of this rig, and Tim is her fiancé, and also he's kind of a dick. Namor approaches to let him know that he's here to help them. He even goes as far as to address them as friends. Tim, however, is not in the mood to be making any friends, and he basically tells Submariner to beat it. Well, Namor ain't about to be taking orders from an idiot, and he calls them both little fools. He basically tells them, I'm here to help, take it or leave it. And so they do, they, they, they take it, that is. Namor's got a plan here, you see, but he's going to need their full cooperation. Now, he needs Tim to have his crew sneak over to an enemy submarine one at a time and take out the Watchmen on deck, then overpower the rest of the crew, then silently return to the freighter. That sounds super easy, doesn't it? And uh, I also just realized I said Watchmen and freighter in the same little blurb there, so that's interesting. Anyway, Skipper-in-law Tim begrudgingly and cynically gives Namor's plan the thumbs up. And what do you know? The crew of prisoners ain't quite the pushover we thought they were. They easily KO the baddies and take over the enemy sub. Meanwhile, Namor heads underwater to snap the freighter's anchor chain. He also telepathically reaches out to Naka to signal for help, and I'd almost forgotten about his underwater telepathy, so it's uh, definitely an interesting thing to see, especially for the first time here. Now, at this point, it kind of gets hard to follow. <laughs> one of the subs fires a torpedo at the other sub. Not sure which one was which. Then the baddies are on deck of the freighter, where they instantly surrender. The freighter then pulls away from shore while Namor's men pull the underwater mines down to the seafloor where they can't be triggered by the ship. Then the confused skipper gets a sit rep from Namor, and I mean, what was he sleeping or something? Did he not realize that this was... whatever, whatever. Uh, Namor tells him to hold course, and then he hops back into the sea, and that is where we leave it. Now this little story here kind of uh, invites some questions that... uh, that I can't answer alone. So anybody listening to this, I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, this has to do with the use of superheroes in the war effort. I think uh, mileage may vary on our feelings on that. Uh, I, I've often talked about how I appreciated 
how DC Comics handled this, or addressed this anyway, in the uh, late Bronze Age by introducing the Spear of Destiny. Now, for folks who don't know, the Spear of Destiny was uh, basically a way to keep superheroes out of World War II, wherein if any of the heroes would, uh, would go to Germany, they would instantly be manipulated by this, by this spear. They would fall under Hitler's control, basically. Which is a really interesting and creative way to, uh, to avoid some very inconvenient questions, right? I mean, we talk about uh, relatability, and uh, if you're living in a world where superheroes do exist, then why, why are there problems, right? It's one of those things where it's kind of hard to walk that line, where you're still representing the world outside your window, but at the same time acknowledging that it is a fantastical world outside your window. I mean, we don't need to look any further than just the past couple of years in the real world, where uh, things have been very, very different. And to Marvel and DC's credit, they really have not addressed it in the comics, because in the comics it would be a non-issue. I mean, let's just look at the X-Men themselves in current year, which dates this program, but Krakoan mutant magic meds. It would stand to reason that... uh, well, they probably have a little bit of an impact on what we're facing in the real world right now. So it's wise not to cross those streams. But here in the Golden Age, we've got uh, Namor actually siding with the Allies against the Axis powers. And it's, uh, retroactively speaking, quite the uh, thinker, isn't it? Because it does present, it does present the pro- very real problems in the world as being handled and dealt with by... Uh, Super characters, right? That's something we can look at uh, probably a few different ways, right? Uh, First, I mean, over on Weird Comics History, Reggie and I would talk about how these early comics were, uh, well, they could be looked at as uh, almost like jingoistic pamphlets, right? I mean, the Buy War Bonds thing would show up after uh, after Pearl Harbor, and things would, of course, this is pre-Pearl Harbor, but things are about to get a whole lot more... Involved. I mean, we can look at the cover to Captain America number one, which will be out not too long after this issue. So this is a very early take on a super character being involved in the war effort, which, looking back, is uh, is quite interesting. Especially as a cynical current year fan where, you know, uh, we've talked about this on Original Recipe X-Lapsed, that, uh, that I sometimes look for symbols where there ain't any. You know, I get stuck in the scenery, so... When I see something like this, my thoughts are immediately cynical, where it's like, I wonder how soldiers would receive this. Like, that they're incapable of, uh, of handling this and need Namor the Submariner to, uh, to jump in and help out. And granted, I don't think there was any sort of malintent or even any sort of below-surface-level intent behind this. I think it was very much a fairly simple and straightforward story where the protagonist of this strip is doing something good, doing something that would get sympathy and get people to, you know, pump their fists to uh, this character who, when we met him just a few issues ago, was uh, was very much depicted as the villain. And here he is, change of heart. Of course, I mean, he was swayed by a pretty face, but uh, by hook or by crook, Namor the Submariner is acting heroically and uh, is someone that the reader can cheer for now. And it also, I mean, while this is a simple story, it also kind of complicates his original mission. Where when he was tasked by uh, Lady Fen, or Princess Fen, his mother, with, you know, taking out the white race, that's a, well, if you pardon the pun, a very black and white statement, right? Here, Namor is above the surface, and he sees that, uh, 
for lack of a better term, the quote-unquote white race is full of shades of gray. And uh, that would very much challenge his established worldview. And uh, here we are with him as he has these revelations. And I, I think that's just a very interesting thread that uh, I hope we see more of as we work our way through this year. I want to see conflict in Namor's own self. I want to see how he handles this, and I hope that we do go deeper. So far, we know that uh, the Holy One, or whatever, Throngor, I don't remember, Thakor, I think, Thakor, the Emperor, we know that he gives Namor his blessing, but we don't know what Princess Fen thinks, and Princess Fen is a little bit more intimate with the situation than the Emperor is, so if that gets explored, I'm, I'm there for it. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it, uh, how it all plays out. But I think that's about all I have to say about this strip. Um, I guess one thing about the art, I did mention during the synopsis that it got a little bit hard to follow at the end. And whether that was due to disclarity or just my own density, I guess uh, I'll leave that to you guys to decide. But uh, yeah, that's all I got to say about uh, Submariner Goes to War. But that's not the only story that appeared in Marvel Mystery Comics number 4, and uh, we're just going to list what we have here. Uh, we have the Human Torch in New York hit by Green Flame. And probably not that Green Flame from, uh, you know, Justice League International. This was by Carl Burgos. We got the Angel in Butch the Giant by Paul Gustafson and Ray Gill. The Masked Raider in The Claim Jumpers by Al Anders. We got Warning Enough by David C. Cook and Harry Ramsey, which stars Steve Naylor in his only appearance. So, uh, okay. Uh, we got Electro, the Marvel of the Age. Again, not that Electro, by Steve Dahlman. And this Electro is a robot used to fight tyranny. Now, he would later show up in that Straczynski book, The Twelve, whenever Straczynski could bring himself to remember that he was writing it. And Electro also made a cameo in a Marvel Now-era Invaders issue. We've got Ferret, Mystery Detective by Stockbridge Winslow and Irwin Hassan. And Stockbridge Winslow is a hell of a name, isn't it? That's a, that's a powerful name. Now, Ferret would be featured in the Mystery Men miniseries back in around 2010, 2011 or so. Though there he was known not as Ferret, but as the Operative. And uh, I guess Ferret might have been a little too golden age. I don't know, maybe that Ferret from Malibu Comics in the 90s still holds the trademark? I, I don't know, um... Uh, the ferret, oh boy, I, I always remember that uh, that one issue that was shaped like his head, which, I mean, that's that's just ugly. Um, now, finally, we have uh, The Adventures of Kazar the Great, fourth episode by Ben Thompson. And, of course, the whole hullabaloo is available for you on Marvel Unlimited if you have any uh, curiosity as to uh, the one and only appearance of Steve Naylor or... Uh, the Ferret Mystery Detective. I mean, it's all there for you. I am uh, still kind of flipping through them digitally to see if there's anything, you know, uh, mutant-relevant or Namor-relevant in any of these strips. And thus far, I haven't seen anything. If anybody out there does read this and uh, find something we ought to discuss, please certainly let me know. And also, I do want to remind you all that I am still uh, seeking advice on whether or not uh, the character of Toro falls under our purview. Uh, for the longest time he was considered a mutant, or believed to be a mutant, he was ultimately retconned into being an inhuman. So please let me know if that's something we need to include, uh, even if we just include the first appearance of Toro so we can go through his uh, his history and his unmutantification. Uh, whatever you all want, I'm uh, totally here for it, so just let me know. And uh, if you'd like to let me know or get a hold of me for whatever reason, you could do so very, very easily. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. 
For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can check us out on Facebook. 90s X-Men is the group. Of course, the complete archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that's available everywhere that noise is available, basically. And of course, if this is a Patreon episode, well, you probably don't need the website since you're already there, but I'll give it anyway. It's patreon.com slash xlapsed. But that will do it for now, my friends. I would like to thank you all again so much for all your support. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.